Our Heavenly Father, in this season of thanksgiving and reflection, we bless thee that thou hast given us this good land for our heritage. We humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Bless our land with honorable industry and sound learning and pure manners. Save us from violence and discord and confusion, from pride and arrogancy, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one united people the multitude brought here out of many kindreds and tongues. Endue with the spirit of wisdom those to whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government that there may be justice and peace at home, and that through obedience to thy law we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In the time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness, and in the days of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail. We do seek for thy servant, our president, thy wisdom and guidance, and for those who counsel with him that same spirit of wisdom and righteousness. We do pray, O God, that thou wilt bless thy church and its influence upon the society in which we live and its witness to the world. We pray that thou wilt trim the lamp of witness, that it may shine brighter and further and with greater glory to Jesus Christ, our King and our Head. We pray that we as individual links in the great chain of the church may be faithful to your voice speaking to us, speaking to us for amendment and reformation of our own characters, so that day by day we may show forth with greater holiness a behavior that will bring honor to thy name. We do intercede, O God, not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, for those who suffer this day, for those who are in places of great trouble and distress, for those who are haunted by fear, for those, O oh God, who are sick and weary, for those who are prisoners, for those who have no freedoms of worship, we do pray for them and ask thy blessings for them. We do pray, Father, for those who are on pains of affliction, for some members of our own congregation for whom this day will find little joy, but who shall be disciplined by suffering and pain. O God, we seek for them thy merciful and blessed relief. We pray for them thy strength. We do pray, Father, that thou wilt bless us at this time in which we consider our material gifts and their relationship to the work of thy kingdom that we may be good stewards of thy gifts, seeking, O God, to gain from our possessions glory for Jesus Christ. Guide us in the way in which we give. And our Father, we pray that thou wilt cause us at this holy season to make a deeper, better use of the true meaning of Christ's coming, that thou wilt cause us to take courage from the fact that he is coming again, 
and that thou wilt quicken in us a spirit of diligence to be faithful and about our Lord's work when he does come. And because thou hast given unto us the scriptures as our guidebook through life, help us to read them more faithfully and to mark their truths and to, and to digest them in such a way that we may put them forth in life through the energy that you bring to us by the Holy Spirit's presence. Our prayers we offer unto thee, not in our name, but in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say that I'm very glad to be home. Enjoyed being out with the Missouri Synod Lutherans last Sunday. I preached three times. I finally found a very strict church. The Missouri Synod Church is so strict, in fact, that I couldn't preach from the pulpit. Uh, but they did allow me, the way they get around this is by having a dialogue. And, of course, those who know me best know that whenever a dialogue is engaged and one question is asked, a sermon begins with the answer. And, and so uh, I had the privilege of, of really speaking in a dialogue but preaching in, in Missouri Synod Lutheran churches last uh, Sunday three different times. I was amazed at the benefits that are derived from a strongly liturgical church. Uh, there is some uh, qualms that come about at this time of the year because the American Bible Society designates either November 22nd or November 29th as Bible Sunday, and most churches follow this and, and uh, use this Sunday to promote the reading of the Bible. But in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, the um, first this Sunday, this last Sunday of November, is always the first Sunday in Advent, and this is when, we, when these churches consider the second coming of Christ. I was impressed with the beauty of the liturgy, and it was helpful to me uh, spiritually. Uh, I enjoyed worshiping with them, and I hope they didn't get too contaminated from the Presbyterian side of the fence. O God, our Heavenly Father, Thou hast been so gracious and good unto us that what we return to thee in the way of these material gifts seems so pitifully inadequate to express our devotion to thee. And yet we do pray that thou wilt take these gifts and that thou wilt put thine own seal of blessing and approval upon them and use them to bring honor unto thy name. For Jesus' sake, amen. Those of you who have had the privilege of visiting the city of London have surely been to Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey is one of the most beautiful of all of the churches in the whole wide world. And one of the things that makes it so beautiful is the great stained glass windows that are there, the statuary and the carvings that are in the stonework of the walls of it. But there's one that's a little bit funny. You see, it is supposed to be a replica of St. Matthew writing his record of the gospel. And the funny thing about it is that he is represented as a little medieval chap with glasses perched on the edge of his nose, busily writing away his record of the gospel. Now, of course, St. Matthew did not wear spectacles. Uh, they did not come along for about 13 centuries after he wrote his record of the gospel. I expect some stonemason who was carving out St. Matthew's uh, likeness there had his own eyes growing weary from the dingy sunlight of London. 
and thought it would be a kindly thing to give to St. Matthew some spectacles, and so he placed them upon his nose. But you know, John Calvin, the great theologian of the Reformed Church, said that the Holy Bible is like spectacles, that God has revealed himself in nature, and God has shown himself in many ways, but that best and fullest of all, he showed himself in his Son, and that we see his Son and we see more clearly his works in nature if we look at them through the spectacles of the Holy Scriptures. Now, Benjamin Franklin also helped us along with our spectacles because Ben Franklin, who was a printer and having to read books all the time, his eyes grew weary. He liked to ride over the countryside and look out at a distance at the scenery. And so he made him a pair of glasses that he would put on to look at a distance, and he made a pair of glasses that he would put on to read a book when he was in a carriage. And then one day it dawned upon this inventive brain of his that it would be a fine thing if you should take a pair of glasses and make at the bottom of them a lens that would be suitable for reading close at hand and then have the top of it so that you could see far off. And so Ben Franklin gave us bifocals. Now this is good, and it carries my analogy about the Scriptures just a little bit further. Because the Scriptures not only show us some things close at hand, but they show us some things afar off. And those who read them carefully can find their lessons that speak to their hearts. In reading through these letters that our Lord directed to John while he was on that convict island, a prisoner in a place that would be like Alcatraz, and yet he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, an old, old man, Sixty years before he had known Christ, and now John, in the latter years of his life, must have walked out on the rocky coast of Patmos and looked far off toward Ephesus and Smyrna and thought about the assemblies of the Christians that would be gathered there for worship. And one day God brought to him an ecstatic vision, and he fell at his feet. He fell down on, uh, at the feet of this vision which appeared to him. He was directed to record what he was about to see unfold before his eyes. And the risen Christ in the splendor of God reveals to him some things that will come shortly to pass and some things that the future holds. And so he spoke those letters to the seven churches of Asia first to John's own church in Ephesus, saying to this church which was correct and orthodox in its belief, I have this against thee, that you have left your first love. Your love for me is growing cold, rekindled your devotion. And then the second letter was to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was going through the fires of persecution. There were people who said that you must take a pinch of incense and place it before an altar to Domitian, who demanded that he be worshipped as God. And all you had to do was say, Caesar is Lord, and sprinkle the incense there, and you were free. But there were these suffering saints of Christ in Smyrna, who said no, that they would die first. And so they would seal their testimony with their blood as martyrs, witnesses, faithful to the very name of Christ. And then there, was letter, then there was a letter that went to Pergamum. And here is a city that 
will permit false teaching to come into its group and so it is rebuked. A letter to the church in Thyatira that tolerates immorality and sin being rebuked. A letter to a church in Sardis. Sardis is being called a dead church. Someone told me of a strange old preacher who one day announced to his congregation that this church is dead, he said. And next Sunday morning he said, I'm going to preach its funeral. I want all of you to come to church next Sunday. And on the next Sunday he had a big coffin up at front. And he preached the funeral of his dead church. And then he invited the congregation to come and view the remains. And they walked and looked into the coffin and they saw a mirror there and they could see their own reflection. He got his point across. And he put it to them in a little couplet. What kind of church would my church be if every member were just like me? What if the whole church of Jesus Christ all over the world was just like me? What if the Christians who are suffering for Jesus in Eastern Europe and in North Korea and in North Vietnam and in Red China and in Cuba were just like me? Would they hold fast to his name? The church in Sardis represents a dead church, having a name of being alive but dead. And then happily we go to the second church, Smyrna. Our Lord Christ spoke no word against Smyrna because in Smyrna he saw faith refined in the fire of persecution. But of all of those churches, the one that I would really love to have visited is this church in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, because here is a different kind of fire. Here is a fire of revival. Here is a fire where there is such order for Christ, such glowing testimony and witness that he says to this church in Philadelphia, I am placing before you an open door. Notice how he begins, and each time he, he states some attributes regarding himself. These are the words of the Holy One and the true. Christ is holy, and he demands of his people that they be holy. No matter what all the world is saying through its influences upon us, through the secular influences that have invaded our theologians and have invaded our churches, with alarming proportion. We must be holy and we must be true. This Christ who holds the key of David, this is a symbol of great authority. This is the one who holds the authority. Perhaps the door to China has been closed because of apostasy at home. Perhaps the door to Russia was closed because the church in Russia would not speak for Christ when it had that opportunity. And perhaps the door will one day slam closed here in America if we are not faithful to him. He holds the key of David. The Lutherans last Sunday were speaking about the second coming of Christ in their liturgy. And they blessed God in their prayers for the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom, say they and the reformers, or the preaching of the word of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in all of its fullness and entirety, not omitting this or that, but taking it like it is and preaching it. This is our task. And this is the gospel that liberates and frees men from sin. This is the gospel that produces holy and Christ-like character. And that is the key 
of the kingdom of heaven. He says of this one who has this, this one says of himself in his administrative of power that he opens and no man shall shut. He shuts and no man shall open. This is his great power. We are sometimes prone to think that the church, by its influence upon legislative bodies, is dominating things. But God is working his purposes out with Russia and the Middle East, with China and the Far East. God is working his purposes out. Not Alexei Kosygin and Richard Nixon rule the world, but God Almighty has all of the authority and power and his purposes are coming to pass. This is the belief of the Old Testament. It is the belief of the New Testament. It is the belief of these Christians who were suffering at this time for their faith in Jesus Christ. This Christ has the authority to shut and to open doors. Listen to what he says to the Philadelphians. I know what you have done. He always knows what we have done, both as a church and as individuals. Now see how he compliments this church. I have given you a door flung wide open, which no man can close. A door flung wide open, which no man can close. And then he says something that's always comforted me when I've thought about it. For you have some little power and have been faithful to my message and have not denied my name. We sometimes are tempted to think that the great outward manifestations of activity by the church is some sign of singular blessing from God. And so we extol people of great prominence. And yet here, Christ speaks to his church in Philadelphia of some little power. Maybe this, you know, this angel to the church in Philadelphia, I think that means the minister of the church in Philadelphia. Perhaps he is a minister of little intellectual endowment. Perhaps he is not a great or a powerful speaker. Perhaps he has no significant influence. But he flings a door open for this minister because he has been faithful to my message and have not denied my name. I would not be standing here in this pulpit today if it were not for a minister very much like this. He would never have made it to Austin College in Sherman apart from the kindness of some friends who supported him. He would certainly never have made it through Austin Seminary apart from a kindly old professor. Some of you knew Samuel Levinson Yackel, an old Jew who got converted to faith in Christ and was a tremendous influence for good in our whole area. Well, the man that was so kindly helped financially and so generously helped through seminary by his professor is a man by the name of Raymond Parklow. He's up in heaven listening to me preach this sermon today, and I hope he hears me loud and clear because I wouldn't be here if it were not for Raymond Parklow. He was one of the worst preachers I ever heard from the pulpit. He'll have to excuse me for that. But... <laughs> But he was one of the most godly people that I ever saw. He was a great diamond in the rough, and it's hard for me to talk about him without weeping. He was my pastor for seven years. He took me hunting and fishing with him. He took me on trips with him. 
And to see that man, that old man, get down on his knees and pray at night by a sleeping bag. To see him open a can of pork and beans and some wieners and roast them and have the blessing. To see that God for him was real, as real as this desk is. That did something for me that the most learned theologian that I ever met in seminary could not do. And the most impressive and significant books that I ever lugged to my library could not do. He made an impression on me of little power, but oh, he was faithful to the message of Christ, and he was not ashamed of the name of Jesus. Don't ever be ashamed of the name of Jesus. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. God help us if we as a church or as individual Christians get to the place where we are ashamed of Jesus or of his name. If you confess me before men, says Jesus, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. I know that there are people who do not speak a word for Christ to others who say, well, I want to show by my life that I love Jesus, not just by my words. That is just about the most arrogant, prideful statement that a person could make. Who of us possibly lives a life that is so good that we do not have to speak a name, a word for Jesus? My old pastor lived the good life, but he spoke his word for Jesus too. Don't be ashamed of that name. There are people in increasing numbers who are ashamed of it. But don't you be one of them. You remember in the book of Acts how he took some people of little power, ignorant and unlearned men, named Peter and John, and how they preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, that name. Let me li read to you something. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, that is, the crowd. And they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. This is what the church needs, is a bold affirmation of faith in Jesus Christ, not an apology for his bodily resurrection or his virgin birth or his second coming, but rather a bold proclamation of it. This is what God blesses, not books on theology nor study courses on theology, but faithfulness to him. It's possible to be a very brainy theologian and a sorry Christian or no Christian at all. See how I deal with those of Satan's synagogue. Evidently, there were Jews in a synagogue there in Philadelphia. Uh, the synagogue's proper name was the Synagogue of God, the Assembly of God. That's where your Assembly of God people get their name, the Assembly of God. But there were some there who claimed to be of the assembly of God, who claimed to be Jews, but they are no Jews, but liars. They were people who worshipped idols. They were people who persecuted the Christians, who would not accept Jesus as the Messiah. 
Watch how I make them to come and bow down before your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Thou preparest a table before me, said David, in the presence of mine enemies. And there are Christians today who are being tortured for Christ, who are at this very moment persecuted for him. Well, those who are faithful to him, one day those enemies of Christ and his people shall bow down before them, and they will acknowledge that Christ loved them because you have obeyed my call to patient endurance. I will keep you safe from the hour of trial which is to come upon the whole world to test all who live upon the earth. I am sure that there must have been a partial fulfillment of this during the Apostle John's own time. I know that an hour of trial did come upon the church, and for centuries it suffered, but I am equally sure that there is another hour of trial coming, a tribulation for the whole world, and we need to be faithful to Jesus Christ. You know, I was thinking about this book of the Revelation and reading through it in Philip's translation while I was out in Kansas. I was reading in it. And I thought about those monsters and demons that were there, those serpents, those plagues of death and destruction. And then I began to think about germ warfare, thermonuclear devices, the great powers for evil and destruction that are unleashed in the world today. And oh my, John was seeing all the way down through 20 centuries. He was seeing things that are coming to pass. There are people who say, oh my, Jesus says here, I am coming soon. But he didn't come then, you say. Old Dr. Manfred Gutsky, one of my professors at Columbia Seminary, used to say that one thing is sure. He's 2,000 years closer to coming now than he was then. He's coming. He's coming. Do you believe he's coming? Are you afraid of the thought of his coming? Or do you look forward to his coming? Do you welcome him? And will you be found faithfully discharging your responsibilities to him, doing his work and obeying him? I am coming soon. I believe with all my soul that Jesus Christ is physically coming back again. And I want to be faithful. And I want to be true to him. And I do not care what Rudolf Bultmann or Emil Brunner or Karl Barth or any theologian said. I will accept him. He's coming back. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. Let no one deprive you of your crown. Let no one take away your crown. This is a crown of faithfulness. As for the victorious, I will make him a, a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never leave it, a pillar in the temple of my God. They would often, after a big battle or campaign, some officer would distinguish himself in the conflict, and as a result of it in some favorite temple of his would be erected a pillar, and carved upon that pillar would be the exploits of this brave soldier. And here Christ speaks to people who would understand. And he says, as for those of you who are overcomers, those of you who are determined to be pure in a world that is bent on impurity,
Those of you who are determined to be true and faithful to the faith, though all the world laugh at heresy and apostasy and sin, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never leave it. You know, they, when he speaks here, he will never leave it in the temple of my God. This area where Philadelphia was was an area subjected to tremendous and violent earthquakes. And the people would go outside the city after it had been devastated by an earthquake and pitch up a tent or some type of hut and they would live inside it. And the tremors and the shock waves would occur for weeks and days uh, after the main thrust of the earthquake had come. And they would go back into the city being afraid, wondering whether they could live there, and whether another quake was coming. And they were always going out of it. And some of the commentators think that this is what is meant here. There will be a place one day where we, you will not only be honored, but where there will be security. You will be in my temple, and you will not have to leave it. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my own new name, my own new name. I have a friend who's going to be married next Sunday, and I can assure you that that young lady is already writing away the name that she's going to be bearing after the wedding occurs next week. She'll be very proud of that because it's someone she loves. Well, we have a new name. Those who are faithful to Jesus Christ, a new name that God will give to us at that day, a new name that we can be proud of. He will write his own name on it. Centuries ago, an incident took place in a monastery, true incident, in which three monks had been studying together the book of the Revelation. They walked out into the garden, and they were recalling the things that they had read that meant the most among them, uh, to them. And one old brother who had been sorely tempted to sensual sins, but who had been faithful and true and pure, said that the thing that meant the most to him was the crown which would be given to those who were overcomers, who were faithful, and who had not yielded. And one brother who had known great sorrow said that the thing that meant the most to him was that God would wipe away all tears from our eyes. There would be no more sorrow, nor suffering, nor pain. And one silent monk, the angelic doctor later ages had called him, St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great lights of the church, spoke. And he said, the thing that means the most to me is I will write upon him my own new name. Let us stand in prayer.